So let's start off and just, you know, I was curious because I find it that people are often have different motivations in life. Um, and I was just curious, like what got you into wanting to get into medicine as, as a career? So I always have been very ethically minded, even when I was a child. Uh, that was something that was very strong in me. And um, I also loved biology and I loved people. And at the end of the day, I, remember I was in college actually, and I had to decide, am I gonna be a doctor or, or an actress? And I was, <laughs> had to make that decision. It was a hard decision because I'd always loved performing. But at the end of the day, I said, okay, I just kind of sat down one afternoon or one morning and I was like, all right, if I become a doctor, I can go to work every day and help someone. That's a guarantee. If I become an actress, I don't have that a guarantee. And then I get to be with people and help them and it's science and I get to make money and be able to help my family out. That was kind of like where my thinking was. But the overarching idea is I need to show up to work every day and have a guarantee that I can help someone, multiple people. It just made the answer so much easier for me. Now, of course, I know I, over time, though, I ended up pursuing both. And um, uh, you can't deny the various facets of yourself. You know what I mean? That's true. But that's how I ended up deciding to become a doctor. And I ended up getting my master's in public health um, from UC Berkeley. Ended up getting another master's in health and medical sciences from UC Berkeley. And I got my um, medical degree from UCF. These are all top schools in the nation for anybody who doesn't know. So I worked really hard. Um, I was a squirrel to begin with. And here I am now. So let's let's also set the stage just a little bit before we dive into the conversation. Can you kind of go sure. over your um, first of all, you have several titles. Can you kind of go over what those are and what it entails educationally and training wise to kind of attain those? Sure. So um, I have my MD uh, and I have a master's in public health, um, my MPH, and I also have a master's in health and medical sciences. So. For the MD, um, vast majority of people finished their undergraduate degree, and um, I majored in molecular cell developmental biology, which um, is kind of like the hard major, right? And, and but it was fascinating because now I have an understanding of molecular biology and thinking about like when we discuss these vaccines and uh, that that my thinking and understanding of them on a molecular level and and seeing it picture wise in my head. Um, I have that facility that maybe other people don't, but you could go to medical school studying history, for example. Um, and so I studied molecular cell developmental biology. I did my undergrad at UCLA. I graduated Phi Beta Kappa and I got highest departmental honors in um, molecular biology. And then I applied to med school. I gotten into uh, this five-year program. Med school is usually four years long. But I, you know, being the overachiever, I decided to do a five-year program that was really focused on training humanistic physician leaders um, called the UC Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program. So I did my preclinical years at UC Berkeley in a group of 12 people, um, including myself, very intimate. Um, and um, uh, then I went to UCSF and did my clinical years two years there and I got my medical degree from UCSF. Along the way, I said, you know, I, I really love studying individual health and understanding how to help the individual. But I had these bigger questions, like what, what causes disease, you know, overall, why does someone get sick and someone doesn't? 
Um, and uh, how do we affect change on a larger population level? So I was at Berkeley already. So I said, I'm going to take, um, I'm going to apply for the MPH program. So I did um, my, got my public health degree and started learning and studying about uh, the factors that caused morbidity and mortality um, nationally, internationally, and then how to create programs. And what are the, you know, the, the pitfalls that historically we've done in, in, in looking at public health, uh, creating public health programs and looking at it from um, a, a level of not just like, how do you make a successful program, but how do you make it sustainable? How do you make it ethical? Uh, how do you make it fiscally responsible? Kind of studied all that stuff. And then uh, after my, um, I also got another master's in health and medical sciences from UC Berkeley that was part of my medical program. And I did, uh, I looked at the sexual health of Latino adolescents and their self-efficacy. Um, and I then went off to finish my clinical years at UCSF, so much work. I ended up going to Africa and did some research in Tacoma. Um, and I had, I think at least one kid during that time. And then I went off to internship. I did an internship at a, a level one trauma hospital, Highland Hospital. It was really intense. Got to see very sick people, and but also you got to help these very sick people, which is awesome. And what a privilege that was. And um, got to really understand the so how socioeconomic factors and, and our past histories really affect our health. And also how at a certain point, the physician is kind of powerless in the system because there's so many other factors um, and so at a certain point, I felt like I was just kind of putting a bandaid on the problem, right? And I did see some revolving patients. That was really sad. And then, of course, you see the gunshots and the traumas as well. And then I uh, decided to do my uh, residency in ophthalmology. So after internship, I went to ophthalmology at UC Irvine. I served as chief resident at UC Irvine's um, ophthalmology pro program. I had another baby at that time. And... Um, making it work uh, and doing it and um, did, had great surgical training there, got to uh, take care of all sorts of diseases, infectious, genetic, uh, and looking at the interaction of how disease manifests. There's a lot of problems that manifest in the eye that are actually systemic diseases like diabetes, like hypertension, um, cancers. Uh, so that was fascinating and it was really fulfilling. And then I went off to UC San Diego and I did a two-year vitreoretinal fellowship. So, you know, when I look back to answer your question, it, it's a lot of training, a lot of studying, a lot of intensity. Um, and uh, I think when you're that young and you're that driven and you're that motivated and your personality is kind of like that, and you kind of have a path you can follow, which I think we can hit upon, like, people who choose medicine often like having a path. If you just do, do A, B, C, D, it's really hard, but you have to do these things and you're almost guaranteed a job unless you really mess up. Um, so that was also, you know, so, so I just followed that path. I worked intensely hard um, and achieved a lot. Uh, and um, now here I am. <laughs> Well, that sounds very exhausting. <laughs> That's a lot. It's not, I don't think it's healthy. I think it's incredibly, I think for the vast majority of people, it's incredibly toxic to the system. The system is sick. Medical training is sick. Uh, people don't live balanced lives in training. 
and they've tried to do interventions to reduce the work hours, workloads, they're working on it. But I think, you know, we need more voices just to go out and say, this is crazy. It's the upside down. Like you're trying to promote health, but your trainees are working in sick, unhealthy environments and their lives are generally most of the time uh, pretty unhealthy too. Well, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I always find it interesting to have a health official get on television to give me health advice that is there. And they're obviously, uh, you know, severely overweight or, you know, they're not cl clearly not in the tip top of health. And uh, I, I find, I always find that very interesting. Um, you know, when we can get in more into that later because, sure, but, you, but, you, yeah. but, I, but I think you set up, set it up very well because there is a sort of system, systemic problem, um, at least from the perspective of, you know, I, I thought for the longest time, one of the principles of, of medicine, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is one of the things a layman might, might think at least is that the first principle is to do no harm and in, and, and to kind of go from there into making people, you know, healthier and better and, and so forth. But there are obviously a lot of issues with our traditional healthcare system, uh, insurance companies. But I think the one that's really kind of come to the forefront right now um, has been pharmaceutical companies um, and just the vast influence that they seem to have. Because like a good example of this is I've heard that, you know, they claim that they 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 have to charge all these prices for uh, because of research and development that goes into them. But then I also hear from the flip side that, well, a lot of these drugs are also developed by government subsidies or through other programs. And then the pharmaceutical companies just kind of come in and and take them to market, basically. Um, you know, I hear about, you know, recalls, I mean, throughout not just recently, but just throughout the decades, there's been how many recalls on drugs that have, have went to market and came back and there's uh, lawsuits that come out of it. Um, I've, I've, I've even heard, you know, I've even heard and, you know, it's, I know it's very complex with the data, but the way they sort of handle trial data and, and, and it's, it's kind of like, from my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is kind of like, the company conducts the trials and then they give a summary of that to the to the oversight committee, to the oversight board, whoever it is that oversees them. And but they keep all the raw data. So whoever's overseeing them really doesn't have a true picture of of what that data is. It's it can be a, a, a uh, you know, kind of an influenced uh you know, a biased, I guess you could say, uh, report that they're actually looking at on those things is do, do I understand that sort of sort of correctly? And sure. And I don't know all the intricacies of the FDA uh, requirements for uh, different pharmaceutical, you know, for the different, sure. for the pharmaceutical companies. But I know it is supposed to be a very rigorous process. That said, there's a lot of things that we need to understand in terms of the interrelationships between pharma and government, um, just kind of looking at it from a macro level, we need a lot more transparency in terms of what data is released and what data isn't, what data they keep back, right? They, they don't necessarily, if something doesn't work, they're not going to present it to the, to, right. to, to the government and be like, hey, it didn't work for this or this. So there's data that we don't see, right? Which one can argue, well, that's their own private business. They could be able to keep it. But actually, I think for 
for our medicine, we need to have very high transparency standards. Um, and then there's like the, the incentivization of uh, people in government who want to maybe ultimately leave government and get a higher paying job in pharma. We need to look at uh, and to see how that may play out in how the relationship between pharma and governments uh, manifest in terms of these companies becoming more successful because the people in government are maybe incentivized um, to maybe go work for these people. So they have to keep this relationship lubricated and what uh, what gets um, what gets you know a pass and what doesn't in terms of like if 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 something didn't uh, you know, if the rule wasn't followed exactly correctly, or maybe there was a gray area, maybe they get a pass. Like these are things that we need to become a lot more savvy about, a lot more, uh, we need more transparency on. And then there's also just the vast, I think looking at it from a larger perspective, like the fact that we are so um, dependent on chemicals that are man-made or that are, uh, you know, discovered and then in, in nature and then altered a little bit so that that chemical can then become something that's marketable and how much there's so much money behind creating something that is not, um, that that is a chemical that's like, that's that's kind of lab made or just slightly altered from nature. And that's kind of the profit model under which we live, that we can't actually have anything. We don't, there's not a huge incentive for us to study molecules um, that are in chemicals that are, are in nature and 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 it's all about well how do we create something in the lab or alter it slightly so that we can then sell it for a profit that creates a lot of problems too um, because then the natural things don't get studied it's, 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 there's so many issues there's so many problems <laughs> yeah. that's one silver lining of covid right to be able to, to have greater conversations about these things i think is so important yeah, yeah, agreed. I think there's there's a reason why our healthcare in this country in the United States is is rather expensive. And you know, you mentioned something very interesting there with with how politicians transition into lobbyists or onto boards. And it, it truthfully it doesn't just happen in the healthcare system. It happens in all industries. It just so happens that I think it's becoming more clear how influential and how much money pharmaceutical kind of puts into these efforts. And I also have found it always very interesting and a little bit probably uh, just perverse in some regard that we allow pharmaceutical companies to to, to advertise on TV the way they do here. Um, I just it's always such a weird commercial. It's 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 very I always feel like it's a little misleading. You know, it's like a, a, a very tranquil, picturesque uh, image. And then at the end, it's all, you know, half the commercial is listing potential side effects that sound uh, more terrible than having dry skin to me. Uh, oh, yeah, they look super happy. And it's an art to making that kind of commercial. My understanding is that there are production companies that their only job is to make that type of commercial. They only focus on pharma, pharma commercials. So there's, there are some regulations about it. But yeah, they, they they make the picture so wonderful. And you just, you're, you're, you know, you don't even have that problem. You're like, I want that life. I want to be like having dinner on the veranda with my family, drinking my glass of, you know, Chardonnay and enjoying myself. Like, yeah, I want that pharma life. It's, it's, it, it, it starts getting into your subconscious as like a way of being that's okay. Whereas I, as a physician, my goal has always been 
minimize the number of interventions as much as possible, get to the person and get to the person's system in a place where the, the system can try to be self-sustaining as much as possible, right? But the 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 commercial makes it like you're lulled, especially because they slow-mo, right? You watch all these commercials, everything like at a certain point, the person's talking and then you see them interacting with their family, everything's in slow-mo, hey, yeah. you know, like it, 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 it's done for a reason, people. It's there to change your mind regarding the product. And they don't show the downsides of it, right? They don't show the person having a horrible Stevens Johnson's reaction to the to the product that they're selling and like being in the hospital in the burn unit. They don't show that. They show the beautiful, tranquil dinner on the veranda, not that their issue is under control, but they don't, they don't show and the, the other side effect. So that's the opposite of what like, a thoughtful discussion in your doctor's office, talking about the pros and the cons and also other options that you could do, right? That's what we need. So um, it's really problematic in my opinion. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, you know, I don't mind, I understand the advertising game when you're trying to get me to buy a new shirt or, you know, something that's strictly commercial consumerism, but when you're telling, when you're, when you're, you know, and let's be honest, brainwash or excuse me, advertising in a sense, if you see something repetitive enough, it's, it's a sense of brainwashing. And, you know, I, I don't know that I want to be convinced that I need to go to my doctor and ask them if I need this. I kind of have always thought about medicine as being like, my doctor will tell me what I I need for me personally, because I'm an individual and I'm very different. And not everybody's this should have the same treatments necessarily for the same illnesses or same ailments. Um, I don't know. Is there do you do you think there's any path to ever getting um, advertising uh, away from pharmaceutical here? You know, I don't really know the history of how we got here, where it became. I think it was like my understanding. I just listened to an uh, interview last night where they were saying it was like, okay, made okay in the 1980s. But don't quote me on that. So I imagine there was a lot of lobbying done, a lot of money behind that. So uh, to change that would need a lot of public, I imagine would need a lot of public activism and probably a lot of money or tons of boots on the ground to try to get it changed. Um, uh, Conversations like this to promote awareness are really, really good too. Like to just at least get that conversation started because um, eating food that didn't have pesticides in it wasn't like a thing 30 years ago, but it is much more now. So I think we can maybe change the mind of the consumer too. There's another tangential issue that I think is, or related, which is that, you know, you said, oh, like I want my doctor to tell me these things, but there's another huge problem, which is now doctors, again, I was telling you the Band-Aid, right? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of like trying to control the situation. And, and with the fact that the insurance companies are uh, incentivized to pay doctors less and less, and the doctors are trying to be competitive in the marketplace. So they're taking the lower insurance rates because everybody else is. And so now that's why you get like a seven minute office visit, right? Because that's that's how they can still maintain their, their income. Um, what can you do in seven minutes? Not much. Take this pill. The woman comes in. I'm feeling bad. I'm low energy. I don't feel like anybody is really listening to me. I'm just low and I feel worthless. Take this pill. Take this pill. 
take this pill. And that's why 25% of women in their 40s and 50s are on an antidepressant. I'm surprised it's not higher. A quarter of women in their 40s and 50s are on on an antidepressant because the medical model is so sick that it is not getting to the root cause of disease. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is something that scared has, has has sort of bothered me about the last little bit, because things that I always thought were sort of settled science have all of a sudden become debatable in a completely different way that now the opposite has become, you know, the term I think was believe, believe the science um, or something, something to that effect. But it had changed and I see it continuing to change. And, you know, you talk about doctors recommending things now and you know i see things like the la school system you know not too long ago had had someone that did a video about um proper nutrition in in in, for the school system and it was um you know talking about food neutrality and food choices are based on false standards of health and and, you know, I'm not saying that we haven't uh, reevaluate, maybe reevaluated some of the things in the food pyramid or whatever you want to reference to. But then you see um, just a couple of weeks ago on 60 Minutes, this was uh, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, um, I think, um, from from it was the White House advisor to Biden on health or, or something to that effect. And um you know, she, you know, comes on and, and basically refers to obesity as a brain disease and that doctors don't understand obesity um, and that she but she did, you know, she also advises these companies that are developing these these medications um, like I think the most recent one is now a shot that they've just advised recommended for kids um, semaglutide or, or I don't know what the what the what the uh, brand name is for it, but I think that's the, the, the non-official name for it. Um, and I just don't understand why during, especially during a time when everyone was reflecting on their health, why there wasn't more of a message on the things that we know are true, which is if you exercise a little bit, you don't have to exercise a lot. If you eat well, like, you know, I know people and I agree with you 100 percent pesticide free would be would be really the best way to go for, for your food sources. But even people I go to the store and just making the simple choice between, you know, the snack food and chip aisle versus the meat and and vegetables or the, the meat and, you know, eggs. Uh, there's there's choices that are made in the stores that. I feel like people need to hear that message and instead they're just being told, look, you're not to blame for anything. You're just take this shot, take this pill and it'll, it'll just solve everything for you. And I just feel like that's a bit of a, of a, of a, of a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I'm not quite, who's going around telling people that they're not to blame for anything. I mean, I don't even like the idea of blame. So, you know, I I like the idea of taking charge of your life. I like the idea of um, taking some responsibility for yourself. Um, The the blame game, especially because so many people I feel have a lot of um, hangups and triggers with shame and guilt. Um, I I don't like that idea, you know, just from the word saying that word, I don't think it's as helpful. 
But the idea of empowering people and letting them take personal responsibility and being like, this is what's in your control. This is what's not in your control. Let's focus on what's in your control. And you actually have a lot more control than you think. And you can make huge changes in your life. I mean, I have made huge changes in my life by taking some responsibility for myself and not not living in like a sense of victimhood. Um, I don't I, I, I haven't seen anybody who's saying that, like, you're not to blame at all for any of your problems with regard to your weight or your obesity. Um, I'd love to see who's, who's saying that. Um, but I think the idea that uh, that we can take responsibility and we do have control is something that's really lacking in our mainstream narratives. It's almost as if if you do say, you know, take some responsibility or you have so much power than you think that, that you're automatically uh, avoiding uh, things that need to be looked at because it is true. It's the 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 advertising for food, the food that stuffs that we do get in the stores, um, the, the 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 food scientists who are actively working to make foods more addictive. Right. These are all true. And then, so in a way it is, there is some stuff that's like, just like social media is being made to be more addictive. Um, just like those commercials, those former commercials almost make you like kind of like mollified or just kind of like entranced by the idea of taking them. Like there is something to be said for that, but I think the, the only way we can get out of it is for people to start taking personal responsibility and in taking personal responsibility, then their sphere of influence increases and they can start changing effective, you know, change, making changes on a more systemic level with these other problems and putting attention on the fact that food scientists are actively manipulating the food to make it more addictive to your taste buds, right? Or to your brain. As far as the question of obesity being a brain only disease, I, I have a very, I, I'm really confused by that statement because that just doesn't make any sense when you think about physical metabolism, um, when you think about muscles burning calories and or, you know utilizing energy, right? The mind body is actually one system. We separate it, but it's actually one beautiful system. It's easier to think about it separately as a mind and a body, but it's one thing, right? And it's so it's 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 a very uh, delicate, complex, nuanced system. So if we just say like obesity is just a brain disease, is is very it's too simplistic. It doesn't even make sense. There are so many things about obesity we don't understand and we don't know, right? But um, for example, I think there's some research that shows that if your family three generations ago had some food scarcity, right? People you haven't even seen three generations ago had food scarcity, that your genes three generations later are changed such that you are more likely to hold on to energy, even if you're following the same diet as other people around you. So what that means is in a way, it's kind of not in your control how much energy your body is going to be holding on to because three generations ago, your family went through famine. Yeah, that's good to know. It's good to understand. It may be like, oh, that's why I'm 10 pounds weight, you know, weigh 10 pounds more. Possibly that's why I weigh 10 pounds more than my friend and we eat the same things. Maybe my body type is just that way. At the same time, that doesn't mean that like you give up and you don't exercise and you don't like eat clean and right. Do the stuff that's in your control. Don't overeat. Eat when you're what my favorite um, uh, dietitian says, eat when you're two, stop when you're seven. Right. That's mindful eating. 
and, uh, and, you know, eat, you know, good amount of protein and fats, some carbs too, and, uh, get great physical exercise and your weight will go where it needs to be. And that may be 10 pounds more than somebody else. That's okay. Because we don't understand all the things about weight and act like we do is really, really like has lots of hubris in that, right? To think that we know everything, that it's only a brain disease, please. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I, I know, I know a lot of people, I, myself, I have, you know, it, it, experience with, uh, you know, how, how it can be genetic, certain pre genetic predispositions can, can occur. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it's at least from my, from my perspective, maybe this is too simple, but you know, it's, it's simple math. If you consume more than you're expending, you're going to start to gain a little bit. And if you're, you know, expending more than you're consuming, you're going to start to lose a little bit and and you can kind of dictate that rate, um, to, to some extent, I would, I would also throw one more key thing that I've been shocked at and recently have just heard some interesting reports on is, is the sugar industry and, and just, that's to me is one of the key things. Like if somebody just wants to starting point in their diet, like it's unbelievable how, how bad and, and how much sugar is in most people's diet. Um, I don't think they're aware of it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, one of my favorite psychologists who happens to be uh, a close friend of mine told me, she said, sugar is a substitute for love. <laughs> so whenever, whenever you're craving sugar, right. Uh, think about where you're missing and kind of love is the meta word for like good feeling, caring, nurturing. So if you're craving sugar, is it because you're actually craving and nurturing and you need to give yourself some self nurturing? Cause you're whatever you're, this happened to me once your daughter, you know, gave you attitude and you turn around and you automatically, your first thing in your mind is I want to go eat some dried mango. And I stopped myself and I was like, why, why do I want dried mango this second? And I realized it's because she was rude and my brain wanted to make me feel better. So it turned to let's feel better. Let's go have some dried mango. And I had to, I stopped myself again. That goes back to the mindful eating, but that was a really beautiful example of how sugar is a substitute for love. It's a substitute for connection. It's a substitute for joyous feeling. And those are things that we can cultivate in ourselves. Um, we don't, and, and, but instead we even in our family systems have cultivated this belief that in order to feel good, you need to eat sugar, right? What do we do? We celebrate birthdays and we're just saying, Hey, have some cake. Like, and I'm not, I'm not against cake. I love cake. <laughs> right. But uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about that, that, that kind of way of thinking about sugar as, as being a substitute for love. Yeah. You know, I, I, it really feels like, you know, you can be, Everybody has certain preferences, certainly, and people are certainly pre uh, in certain certain people are probably more inclined to have addictions than others. But I think you with a little bit of insight, you can at least uh, pick healthy addictions um, and, and, you know, you could be addicted to sugar, to unhealthy eating, to, you know, hardcore drugs and alcohol and things like that. It, it, but it's, it's all a choice. And, you know, sometimes I just feel like people just don't, they're either not informed, which is possible when, when I think about the school systems, but 
you know, I also feel like there's so much information out there that there's just a lack of discipline by most people to, to make that conscious choice as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people aren't taught that by their families or they, you know, nobody, nobody, most people don't, aren't taught about eating mindfully, right? Their parents are mostly overeating anyway. Let's face it. Most people's parents are overeating. There's like snacks everywhere, right? The reason those supermarkets carry those foods is because people buy them. I mean, yes. even, even home cooked food. I can remember growing up, uh, my, my mother cooked a lot and it was really good food, but growing up, I could never figure out why I was never as lean as my, my friends. Not that I was overweight, but I was just never super lean. And sure enough, as soon as I got out, moved out and started eating more, you know, uh, what I thought was, was better for me, it, it changed <laughs> pretty Wow. That's, and it's, and, you know, coming since, since I'm a woman and I have that like more of a, a, you know, feminine maternal uh, facet to myself, I do feel that a lot of times when you give food to a child, right. And you're feeding, that's like your love language to show that you care to that person, right. Eat, eat, have a second helping. I made this great food, you know, eat it. I'm not really hungry. What do you mean you're out hungry? Like, like I made this, go ahead, eat it. It makes me, it makes the mother feel good when the child is eating the food. And so then there's even a subconscious behavioral uh, uh, force to get people to connect around food. Um, and that's, that, that, that's something that's subconscious baggage to let go of, right? To eat with enjoyment, but not to only eat, but to not to find enjoyment only in eating or to find connection and love only in eating. Um, that's something I think women can, not, or just people who, who enjoy feeding other people can also become more aware of. Yeah, I, I think it goes even maybe deeper than that because, you know, I, I grew up in in, south, in the Southeast and, and I've traveled around quite a bit and it definitely is, I think, culturally ingrained in a lot of communities oh. as well. Like it's just, it, sort of the expected thing. I mean, when I go home now, I've, I've, I don't, I clearly am not eating enough and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> every, every get together is, uh, you know, it's, it's almost always around, you know, food, food based to some extent. And so I think there's yeah. a lot of cultural existing cultural expectations and traditions that, um, have to be overcome as well. And, and that can go deep, uh, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Matthew, I totally know what you're talking about. My family's from Iran. We're like Persian, right? We're like the hosts, right? You, you come, you don't even know the person. You invite them to your yep. house and you feed them. Absolutely. Um, and that's beautiful. And that's wonderful, right? I'm not saying to like stop that, right? But but to, to not make it the only way to connect, to not make it the only, you know, the only way to, to, to tell the person that you care about them or the only way to find joy as a family, is only around the food, right? So to kind of, to just be together, there's something really beautiful about cultivating that connection and that love together without other things around. Um, yeah, gosh, I thought I was just gonna come here and talk about medical freedom and, and, and medical censorship, but we've gotten deep already. Well, well yeah, well, we're about to get to the, to the, to, to all that, um, because I think that leads into what we've been talking about, which is, you know, knowing where to get good information, knowing where you can uh, find information that's going to work for you, because I think that's also something that I've always thought leading up to this, at least to the last few years, is that, you know, healthcare is a bit of an individualized thing. And I by no means have 
any uh, fancy medical degrees, but I took a few science courses in, in college. And so I have some real basic understandings, you know, even though it's been many years now, enough to understand that what I felt like I was hearing wasn't exactly the science that I should be trusting, even though they were saying it was the science to trust. Um, and so it, it really led me to a point where like, who do we turn to and who do we, do we trust? And, um, it bought it, and it was more troublesome to me when I saw, um, this, uh, AB 2098 coming up in California, because it was, to my understanding, at this point, they were taking it a step further. Uh, you know, the last couple of years, it felt like there was a lot of coercion and influence and pressure on healthcare officials to um, give a particular uh, set of information or perspective on information. And, but it was still up to professionals, healthcare professionals, they still had the ability to give differing information for a particular individual based on their particular health situation. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding of, of AB 2098 was that this would basically take that right away. Um, it would punish uh, and penalize physicians for um, not, for, for giving recommendations to their patients that would be contradictory to the established uh, line of thinking, I guess you could say. Do I have that kind of understood correctly? Um, well, I think you're underlying the dangers uh, very well. So AB 2098 was a bill that was introduced this last bill cycle by the uh, assembly. Um, and it passed both through the assembly and the Senate. Uh, California has a bicameral legislature. And um, it, was a slew, it was part of a slew of bad bills that was put forth. Um, uh, by uh, mostly members of this vaccine working group, group made up of legislators as well as two legislators who were doctors. Um, and they saw this COVID uh, as an opportunity to um, create solutions that they thought were important to do. For example, creating a vaccine registry for the whole state of California. So they, the government knows exactly who's vaccinated against what, when, where. Um, uh, as well as lowering the age of consent. They wanted to lower the age of consent for vac a vaccination to 12 years old so kids could get it done in school or without their parents' knowledge. They used that. Um, the, the Scott Wiener, who was the person who um, wrote that bill, uh, was uh, saying that this was going to empower children, right? Forget about families and empowering the patient, uh, the parent-child connection. We just want to empower kids to do whatever they want. It's ridiculous. Fortunately, how can a minor, I, I don't understand that either. How, if, if they're not able to vote and they have to have parents permission to do almost everything else, how can a 12 year old give consent uh, to know what the right medical decision, how do they have enough understanding to make that decision? Oh, well, I think that's a very logical question. And I think that there's many people in the legislature who don't have that level of logic that you do. Right. Um, Obviously, the brain of a child is very different than the brain of an adult. Obviously, children need to have the wise guidance of family members, wise family members, wise mentors to help them reach a state of wise adulthood. Um, obviously, a parent should know what's happening medically to their child. So if the child ends up having a horrible seizure in the middle of the living room, the parent 
is not knows exactly what's going on and has no, you know, doesn't is not like clueless to the fact that their child got a medical procedure that afternoon. Right. These are obvious things. But, uh, you know, they use the idea of like children who are at risk and whose parents don't care about them uh, as uh, necessitating the reason for that law. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I mean, if you're worried about at-risk kids who are being neglected by their family, why don't you make a law specifically for at-risk kids who are being neglected by their family and not this blanket law? They had an agenda. They knew exactly what they were doing. I started, you know, and, and so and then there was also AB 2098. This law was um, fortunately that law didn't get passed, the 12 year old age of consent law. But AB 2098 did. And what this law says is it says with specifically to with regard to COVID. With regard to COVID, any doctor who spreads disinformation or misinformation, and we'll get into the definitions in a little bit, any doctor who spreads misinformation or disinformation with regard to COVID can have their license and be investigated. And one of the possibilities is have their license taken away, right? So the Medical Board of California, um, and, and the, uh, there's also the Osteopathic Board of California. They uh, are the ones who license doctors and it's to keep the public safe from really bad apples, really bad characters who are being, uh, you know, irresponsible, doing horrible things, alcoholic who's, you know, uh, drunk on the job, uh, someone who's doing uh, procedures, but not really doing them, just pretending to do them, things like that, like real unethical wackos. But the way they wrote this law made it so they could go after anybody who didn't follow the mainstream consensus viewpoints held by people in the legislature, especially the Democrats, held by um, the public health officials. In general, in the past, doctors have had a lot of leeway with what they can do, like you were saying, Matthew, what they could do for certain patients. And I say, well, you know, I don't actually think this treatment would be good for patient X, but I do think that it would, but I understand that the, the general thinking is that this procedure is good for everybody. But I think for patient X, you're very sensitive. You've had some medical re reactions to other drugs. So let's just let your system rest for a little bit. Let's not do it. But we can't do that anymore. With this law, if what they were trying to do is they were trying to say any doctor who speaks out um, against uh, and gives a view that's not consensus opinion uh, publicly that they can get their license taken away. And then they, all of a sudden, someone pointed out to them, oh, actually, that's a First Amendment thing. You can't go after people in America if they're saying things in public. So then they said, oh, we can't do that? All right, fine. We'll change it to just only the patient-doctor relationship. But you can see what the intention of the law was. The intention of the law was to chill the speech of public speech of doctors. But then they just said, okay, we're going to go between the patient and the doctor relationship. And if a doctor gives that patient misinformation or disinformation, they, they can have their license taken away. And I read the definition of misinformation, Matthew, and I got so disturbed. Multiple reasons. First of all, it didn't make grammatical sense, right? You read, you want to have a law be clear. And I was like, this doesn't, this is like a word salad, their definition of misinformation. It was, uh, misinformation was defined as, um, false information contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus contrary to standard of care and i was like this this, is, this doesn't make grammatical sense it's vague 
It's dangerous just by the fact that it's vague. And consensus, as a doctor, I've gone against consensus. Why can't I go against consensus? Plenty of doctors go against consensus. I had a severe illness, Matthew, that changed my life, by the way, and made me awaken to like new paradigms and ways of thinking about health and our systems and how toxic they were. But in that, in that um, journey, I, as a patient, went against consensus. I chose doctors who went, some doctors who went against consensus and they were kind of like discussing back and forth what they should do, right? So that word was very dangerous to me. Why is the government trying to make doctors only follow consensus? And so I started speaking out against um, the law or the bill and I met with my representatives. I just started becoming an activist in my own room, in my bedroom. And um, when it looked like the bill was gonna get signed into law, by the governor, um, that's when I really got very concerned. And because I've been speaking out, right, you take action and there's reactions that come at you, like opportunities open, right? So the react positive reaction was that this opportunity opened for me to um, be part of a lawsuit against the state of California and the Medical Board of California uh, that uh, sued the governor and the medical board uh, for infringing on our First Amendment rights to free speech as, for, as physicians and for me as a patient um, because of my history and also our 14th Amendment right to due process because the law is so vague. You have to, ha you have, to have like a person of average intelligence to be able to understand it. And we argued that it doesn't make sense. And um, when you read the state's response to our lawsuit, you just see how aggressive and um, I'm trying to find a nice word and not use a mean word, how aggressive and ill-advised and unwise their methods of making arguments for the necessity of this law are. And, um, they try to find any excuse to try to weasel their way um, out of the very valid arguments that this law doesn't make sense. They tried to say, oh, these people don't have standing to bring this lawsuit. They tried to say, oh, this law is very clear. They tried to say, well, you know, they can do whatever they want. I mean, you know, you have leeway, right? But they weren't getting at the fact that the words of the law were going to pigeonhole doctors into feeling like they could only say what the mainstream consensus was. And I already knew, Matthew, before this law was put in place, the doctors were showing their speech because not the private practice they say is dying. I hope it's not, but like a lot of doctors are now working for corporate-like entities. And when you, when you have that type of job, don't tell me that you're not gonna be incentivized to keep your mouth shut at work instead of speaking out and like having a rally for patient rights and for ethics and medicine. No, you're just gonna be like, whatever I need to do to put food on my table and keep my job, right? So that's why people, I mean, I already knew my friends, their speech was being chilled. People were texting me. They were sending me DMs. I'm so glad you're speaking out. Free speech in America has gotten so bad. These are doctors saying this to me. And then with the passage of this law, it would chill their speech more. Some of my friends were telling me, don't sign any exemption. Don't um, keep, your mouth, keep your mouth shut. I tell my patients, um, one of my friends said, I would like to tell you what I think, but I'm not allowed to. 
That's frightening. That's medical dystopia we're living in. Well, that's that's the part of it that that troubles me because I I don't want I I am very different. Uh, you know, I share genetics with my family, for example, but I'm a different person than any of them. And what you know, they get told for uh, something is going to be very you know how to treat it is going to be very different, perhaps than how I would get told to treat it. And I wouldn't want to go to a doctor that's going to look at me and go. You're a six foot, uh, you know, male and goes down a chart and just goes across the chart and, and is like, this is the what I'm supposed to prescribe to you based on this and based on who you are, based on your demographics, based on your your block in life or whatever. Uh, that that's what's worrisome to me is is I, I prefer, you know, to have an, and admittedly. Uh, you may fuss at me for this, but I don't really go to the doctor unless I injure myself playing sports or something. But um, in general, when I do go, I still want a doctor that's going to, you know, look at my individual case and 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 feel free to tell me, you know, and look, I, tell me what my options are, you know, whatever they are. Um, I'm I'm fairly rational. And if we talk them through, I'm sure I'll make a, a, a decent a decent choice. But I at least want to know what those options are. And it's interesting that you that you stated it that way, too, because about about the the true target of this being the public voice, um, because to me, it, it went even it, in an even worse direction because it started now the direction it went affected the, the patient doctor you know, relationship. And it reminded me as well, because we are in a unique situation in, in the United States. And I think we should keep that in mind. I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, but he's, yeah, right now he's going through a, an interesting situation with his own uh, licensing and accreditation to practice in Canada. And, you know, Canada doesn't have the same protections necessarily that we do. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting dynamic as these governments are all seem to be trending in this direction as well, which is troublesome. I think Jordan Peterson's case is, uh, and this case, um, are two very clear examples of how free speech is under attack and how COVID is being used um, to promote a decreased autonomy, increased authoritarianism, and decreased rights in America and Canada. I've been following what's been happening in Canada. It's really frightening. Countries that you thought would be were like, quote unquote, Western, right? Supposedly more civilized. Um, they're under attack. Our free speech, our uh, autonomy, our ability to make smart decisions for ourselves, for our bodies um, is under attack. If the Nuremberg Code, the uh, various uh, documents that were um, signed, enshrined, saying that you have a right to do whatever you want to your body are held up as examples of our like civilized, you know, things that we adhere to. But at the same time, we tell people, well, if you want to keep your federal job or if you want to keep your job at all in Hollywood, in whatever uh, industry that you're at, I said Hollywood is um, part of the entertainment industry too, you know, and my friends that have not been able to work because you know, there was where we're told we can't be part of a production because of the vaccine. It's like it's, it's they're being coerced to do this. I have so many of my friends who didn't want to get vaccinated, who felt like they were coerced because otherwise they would not be. That's not ethical. Let's not kid ourselves. That's not ethics. Right. Bodily autonomy 
is is very important. And and so this is something that these two cases, Jordan Peterson, this case, there's other cases and other in Canada as well. And these are these are these are a sign of what's to come if we don't act now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you brought it up again. You know, I, I know so many people, my, myself included in, in some respects that were, you know, had to make, uh, difficult decisions, uh, as to whether or not to, to get vaccinated. Um, you know, and it, it, you know, some people might be in a position where, uh, you know, they can be a little, maybe they're independent or, or whatever, but like you said, whether you're a doctor or, any of these other companies and these any of these other industries that were requiring this, um, it made a lot of average everyday people that don't have a lot of options financially um, to make a difficult decision. Do I risk my my career path? Do I risk my financial stability to you know do what I think I need to do for me and my health, or do I just take it and roll the dice? And uh, you know, I. I it's interesting. I, I guess I'm a little more, uh, you know, to let everybody do what they will. You know, I, I, I personally, I think all drugs should be legal. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a little more liberal with that perhaps than some for sure. But, um, you know, I think it, it has to come down to personal choice as well, um, you know, with these things, because um, my employer doesn't know my history with my health. They don't know the, you know, something that may have happened when you were a kid or even 10 years ago. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know, it's just troublesome to me to see things. And I guess I would feel differently. You know, I was like most kids when I was a child, I probably had the MMR, you know, uh, certain vaccines at the time. Um, but they had been around a while as well. And I think that was also something that was a little bit concerning. I mean, admittedly, I'm one of those people that I'm not going to buy a car the first model year. You know, I'm going to wait until they work out the bugs on it. And same thing with pretty much anything, to be quite honest. And so I think, you, there, you know, what my just as an aside to what you just said, one of my professors in my internship told me, he said, you know, I like to wait seven years before a drug comes out, before I start using it on my patients. And I said, well, why seven years? He said, that's how long it usually takes for the problems to show up. I was like, oh my gosh, right? And then you see this rollout with this vaccine super fast. Now they say, oh, you know, the, the really acute problems you're gonna see within a couple of weeks. But of course, we now see that there's other long-term issues that can show up. Um, but anyway, you were saying, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, you. no, let's let's keep going down that road, because that's something I don't fully understand. But I under but I know there could be an issue with it. And that's with these heart conditions, especially with. Yeah, it seems like young, younger, high performance kind of athletes. Uh, and I, I don't understand that. Can you explain maybe what's happening there? Yeah, you know, I'm not I, I haven't reviewed the literature to be up to date on it um, for this conversation, but uh, there's um, some thoughts that if you can get subclinical myocarditis and um, infl inflammatory heart issues that can then cause arrhythmias. Um, or if the person was right, and then there's the concept of load, right? So maybe you have one insult and it doesn't show something up and then you do something else that does the other, you know, that further insults it, right? And then you have a manifestation of disease manifesting as a terrible arrhythmia leading to um, loss of consciousness or death, right? So these are things that we need to actually parse out and investigate further. 
the inflammatory nature of this vaccine compared to other vaccines, quote unquote vaccine. Right? I don't even know if I would define this as a as a vaccine. Um, I would. It's like a treatment. It, it, it's. Or am I being? Am I just? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's a treatment. It's a very big umbrella term, but it's like. Well, what is this exactly? It's 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 using your body's cellular machinery to create a, a protein from an mRNA that gets inserted into the body, um, which, by the way, we were told initially only went to one place and quickly degraded. But now we're finding that that's not true, which I, I was very surprised when my colleagues were going around saying that. And I would say to them, this is like the vaccine first time. Like, Why are you saying that? Like, there's no proof sense. of that. If you don't have proof, you shouldn't be saying anything. You should say, I don't know. But people wanted security. They wanted to have a sense of like knowledge and feel like they, 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 what they were, that there was, there was some stable ground upon which they were making um, these decisions. And so then they very quickly were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going to get degraded very quickly. Or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only going to stay localized in that area. And I was just scratching my head like, am I missing something? Because did I miss a report or something that was got published that I didn't, that I didn't see? No, people were just talking out of their, not their mouths, somewhere else, <laughs> making stuff up or following like groupthink, groupspeak. Um, anyway, so now we're noticing the inflammatory nature of these vaccines, but I've gotten to this place where my colleagues and some of my co-plaintiffs, like they're afraid to even say these things, right? Because the law was intended to go after, they say it in the law itself, AB 2198, oh, if you speak out, you know, against the, the efficacy of vaccines, that was like one of the things that the reasons they cited for uh, 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 the reason for this law, like questioning vaccine efficacy or questioning vaccines, something like that. Um, don't quote me. But that's a problem because then that makes people feel like they can't question science and can't question evidence that's there that they might interpret differently or they might say well actually have these other questions it, it's it's clearly that we they, they want us to follow one directive public health directive from the california department of public health or the cdc where in fact like science scientists doctors were supposed to be constantly questioning constantly like thinking is this the right thing should we be vaccinating pregnant women should we wait five years before we do that? Uh, you know, what are the long-term consequences? Which should we study the long-term consequences before we inject children, right? But if things, laws like this get passed, you can't even ask these questions. To go back to the to the to the inflammatory nature of this vaccine, it's something that definitely needs to get studied. So um, there's a lot we don't know. It may be multifactorial. Um, you know, you, you may find out. You know, if if somebody had viral illness that maybe promoted some inflammation, then they get some other viral illness. And they, like, there's so many combinations of possibilities. We need to study them. We need to be curious. We need to ask. Um, it's very sad. Yeah. So what, what is the, you know, in, in a, in a day and time when transparency is very important to a lot of people, like what, what is the, why it seems like if they wanted to alleviate a lot of this, 
they wouldn't be holding on to the data for so many years. What is, what is, is that typical that you would, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just a layman. So I look at it and I'm like, well, that seems strange. They don't want to release the data on it for how long? 75 years like or something. 50 something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know the full story on that, but they didn't want to release the data or the FDA didn't want to release the data for like 50 something years. Yeah. That, that, that yeah. seems, I don't know if that's typical, but that seems really suspect, I think to an average person. Yeah, I, I think even if it was typical, like with this situation, you should not be because when there's already questioning and there's there's this um, urgency that's led people to do certain such policies that are infringing on people's freedoms and have led to coercive actions, you actually need to require more transparency. So it doesn't matter to me if this is standard or not. The situation is too urgent for not to us for us not to have that transparency. We need the truth out here so that we can start knowing what to do for ourselves and our children. If there are any long-term consequences or possibilities, then we need to start acting proactively now to prevent further health problems in the kids who have gotten vaccinated. Um, and to find, you know what I mean? To preemptively like think about possibility. If there is some bad stuff, we need to like find solutions sooner rather than later. Not waste a generation of people before we get to the next generation. And in the meantime, the government wants to vaccinate every child, right? Like they've now they put it on the vaccine schedule as a as a yearly thing, um, or they want to, um, or at least it was approved to get on the vaccine schedule as a yearly thing. It's like ridiculous. Yeah, that's the other thing I think I, I didn't quite understand with the response to this. Look, I, I understand it spread very quickly, and that a lot of people did die and a lot of people got sick. Um, but I think I would have expected this kind of response more for something that had a, a much higher death rate or had a death rate that was less targeted. I felt I felt like this. I mean, maybe I, I, I but my interpret or my understanding of the overall numbers resulting out of this was that it mainly targeted older people were most hit. And, you know, obviously people that had health, pre-existing health conditions such as obesity, actually. Um, but it really wasn't that impactful on children across the board and younger people. And I think that's the thing that really confused me with with the, the mandate on it. it just felt like it still could have been a choice for the people that needed it and as well for the ones that maybe didn't need it as much. So that makes me then think about and this goes to the better question of like the politicians who are making these rules, like who's advising them? Is it a meritocracy? Is it the smartest people who are advising these politicians? I don't think so. Are these wise people? I don't think so. Are these people who are um, uh, uh, giving uh, multiple perspectives and ideas? Doesn't seem like that. Maybe for some of our politicians, but like the overall big decisions that were made um, when we see the big decision makers um, like Francis Collins and, and, and Anthony Fauci at the NIH and CDC, like, I'm sorry, at the... Right, the NIH and CDC, the um, there was just like one viewpoint, and that's really, really disturbing. Why is that? I think it goes back to that we're talking about mindful eating. Let's talk about mindful decision making and just being mindful in general to be non-reactionary. The idea of wanting, to, when especially when like people when there's an emergency that happens, uh, people feel reassured when their leaders are quote unquote doing something about it. And the leaders themselves, I feel, feel reassured when they're taking action. We're gonna implement this program. We're gonna do this. We're gonna control this. 
But anything I've learned in my mindfulness training and in my mindfulness path of being a whole person and being more mature and wiser is often you need to just be. And you need to then, then you see the picture so much more clearly. More data comes in, more ideas come in, you start getting more perspectives. But what we saw very clearly, now we have evidence at the beginning of this pandemic is that the government shut down opposing viewpoints and opposing voices. Um, and they followed one narrative and that narrative then ended up doing what you said is that everybody has to follow these rules. Everybody has to get this done to them. If you want to work in the federal you know, government, you're going to have to get this shot. You're going to have to you know, follow these rules. You're going to have to wear this mask. Um, without stopping and saying, well, what's the data behind masking? Is it a clear cut? Why, what's the, you know, and, and there was not. also a lack of like, <laughs> right. You know, do we have all the evidence? Um, and is the, is our, 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 and this is one thing I learned in public health school is so important. Like the interventions always come at a cost. So you have to know what the cost of your interventions are long-term. I didn't hear that at all. What is the cost of closing down schools? for months and months and months. What is the cost of working from home? Sure, it's good for some people, but one of my friends who's a, a primary care doctor, she said, every other patient, this is in the beginning of the pandemic, she told me every other patient I'm sending to behavioral health. So 50% of the patients she saw, she, what's behavioral health is mental health services, psych. People were going crazy because <laughs> it was so new, their routines were interrupted. Did anybody think about those long-term costs? There were papers being published that talked about that, but those people were ostracized. Those people were vilified, including in my physician Facebook groups. I couldn't even have a conversation about those studies because people were like so, they were like so indoctrinated into thinking that was the one way, whatever the CDC said, that was the way to do it. Um, it's really, it's, it's really devastating when you think about it. Well, it's even more evident, you know, at least to me with uh, the recent, you know, uh, e with Elon taking over Twitter, the Twitter files kind of coming out and some of the reports that kind of really, really do show how the the, the government is, you know, uh, pressuring and putting, you know, putting pressure on social media platforms to control, you know, certain speech on there, which I think across the board, even outside of medical gets gets very, very dangerous in general. Um and yeah, but it's also illegal, right? The government can't be. be the government can't be colluding with private businesses to censor public to, to censor citizens. It's illegal. <laughs> should, should be. Depends. Yeah. Do, do we really live in a in a democracy? Uh, I guess is the question. <laughs> right. I mean, Fauci did it. Francis Collins did it. They went. They 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 were looking to find ways to silence people. Doctors that they didn't agree with. Yeah. I also have to ask you while, while you're on here, because I'm sure you're, you're much more knowledgeable on this than myself. How worried should I be about um, these drug companies doing gain of function stuff and something breaking loose? Uh, because I know that's a topic that wasn't allowed to be discussed, but it does seem more likely that that's probably now two years later it seems more see likely project, did you see the project veritas where they basically were talking about have, it what did they call yeah. it? they called it some sort of evolution guided evolution or i forgot what the phrase they called it they didn't call it gain of function they yeah. called it like 
Well, well that's happened a few times. Whenever they, they think there's something that they want to change the narrative of, they, they've done this a few times where they just change the definition of it. And right. Or just change the name. It'll just sound nicer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's evolving. Right. It sounds like a good thing. Um, I uh, would be very concerned because I don't trust people enough to be responsible. Right. Like the guy who's on the project Veritas, who is like one of the top people, you know, at Pfizer, he's he's saying I was lying basically to make up for the reason, reason that for why he was saying the stuff he was saying. He said I was lying to impress my date. I looked at that guy. I was like, that's not making you look any better, dude. It's actually making you look like a worse person. You're lying to a potential life mate, right? Like that's just like low quality, low vibration type of behavior. That's not the kind of person who's like a wise, responsible, caring person. You're not conscientious. You're not caring. And you're the person who is part, part, part of the leadership at Pfizer, right? You're a liar, a liar. You're not going to be conscientious. You're not going to be on top of it. And I, so I have, no, I have no trust in them. I think that there's people working at Pfizer who are conscientious, who are caring, who want to do the good thing. But in my experience, those generally, those types of people don't rise to the top positions of power. That's very true. Right. That's because they, they, we tend to have more sociopathic ter- tendencies. People with more sociopathic tendencies tend to rise to those positions of power. Not all the time but often because they're willing to be the type of person to make those ethical uh, concessions in life and humanistic concessions so that they minimize really promoting humanity and ethics to get to where they are, to make the big bucks, to be in leadership. Oh man. So where do we go? So where do we go? Where do we go from here? What happened? What's happening with let's start there. What's happening with the, the lawsuit in 2098? OK, so let's end on a good note. So because so what happened is what it is, goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the uh, conversation, Matthew, taking personal responsibility and saying, I'm a small person. This is my circle of control. What can I do? So that's what I did. What I've been doing in my life is I turned my life around like taking action. And then as you do that, your circle of control grows. And as your circle of control grows, then, you know, I joined the lawsuit and we'd spotted in court and stars aligned. We went to the hearing, our first hearing, this was on January 23rd, 2023. I'm working with fabulous people, by the way, Janine Yunus is our lawyer from the new civil liberties Alliance, which is the legal nonprofit you could donate to. Um, My co-plaintiff, Aaron Cariotti, Tracy Beth Hug. Um, Pete Mazalewski and um, uh, Ram Duraseti are just fabulous, so brilliant, so ethically minded, and they're doing this for all the right reasons. So we went to court, and the judge heard our case. How, how many? How many? She, how many physicians are a part of this, by the way? So there's a couple lawsuits. The one where uh, our lawsuit is five physicians. There's another um, lawsuit that was two physicians that. Um, their judge basically threw their case uh, out and so, or they lost their case and they're, they're appealing. Um, that judge's decision I read, I just, I just, I was just, I, like mind boggled. I was like, really, this is his thinking, but you know, um, I don't want to disparage him any further, but it just, I didn't agree with his decision is what I'm going to say. Um, but our judge came out and there was another uh, lawsuit that we actually tag team with, which was with the um, Children's Health Defense Fund and um, Physicians for Informed Consent. They had their lawsuits. So our we our lawsuits were heard at the same time. 
um, with the state uh, arguing. Uh, and our judge, basically in the middle of the hearing, he's like 84, 85 year old man. This is what I'm talking about. Conscientious, critical, deep thinking people is what we need. In the middle of the hearing, the deputy attorney general said, well, judge, I think we can all agree here that the definition of misinformation is very clear. And he interrupted her. He interrupted her. He said, no, the definition of misinformation is not clear. The definition of misinformation is nonsense. (laughs) And I was so happy to hear those words because I said, finally, someone gets it. Like they get it. And he said, so then two days later, he comes out and he grants us a preliminary injunction, which means that while he's making his final decision, the state can't act against us and enforce this law against us. Um, so, and in his preliminary injunction, he basically said, this law doesn't make sense. He, didn't, he, he said this, he didn't say this law is nonsense. <laughs> he said that in court, but he basically said in his uh, preliminary injunction decision that the law is too vague that uh, it doesn't, that the term consensus is not clear. Like what kind of consensus? Formal consensus, informal consensus. What's contemporary consensus? Is that in the past two months? Is in the past six months? That, that it, this, it gives so much power to the state and that it was grammatically incorrect as well, which is what I thought, oh, so many months ago when I read this law and thought it was ridiculous. So we're gonna be waiting to hear his final decision. And um, I've heard that the state is, not planning on appealing if they lose, because I think they're strategizing to win another lawsuit for the same law that they think they have a higher chance of winning. So basically they think they have a higher chance of losing ours. So they want to go support the suit and and pursue the suit that they think they have a higher chance of winning because they think the other opposing side is not as strong. So I think they're too scared of us. But that kind of shows you the strategizing involved and legal maneuvering involved in um, in, 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 in how potentially we, even though our lawsuit is so strong, that we the law could still be the law of the land. Um, in any case, I'm going to be on this. Um, I'm going to be working on it with my lawyer, with my amazing co-plaintiffs, and uh, using opportunities like this conversation with you, Matthew. Thank you so much to get awareness to the people, that they have to be aware of increasing authoritarianism in medicine, decreasing autonomy, the um, wearing away of the patient-doctor relationship by governmental forces that want you to, uh, that want society to be in a way that's not really truthful. Um, and, uh, and I really urge everybody listening to be savvy um, about this stuff. And and quick question about the strategy there. If they they're pursuing this other lawsuit more aggressively because they have a better chance of winning it, is there thought that by winning that lawsuit that the judgment in that lawsuit would supersede the judgment in your lawsuit if you come out victorious? I think that's the thinking. I think that's the belief. So um, but uh we'll see we'll see what happens. I have to figure out more specifics and um but i think that's the idea is that they want to win that other lawsuit so it becomes the law of the land (sighs) 
So tell people, uh, we want to inform them on this, where can they learn more about this, uh, you know, AB 2098, if they live here in California, um, and how to get, you know, more active about it and educate themselves, um, and, and also just in general about their, um, you know, education on their own health and, and how to become knowledgeable on that, um, and obviously connect with you. So there's a bunch of great organizations in California um, that are uh, promoting medical freedom, uh, the sacred relationship between parents and children, um, and also bodily autonomy. So organizations that I really enjoyed learning from are things like the Unity Project. Um, Children's Health Defense Fund is, has a good newsletter where you can kind of um, get updates. They have, a, of course, very like anti-authoritarian slant. So be a savvy consumer of your information, right? But these are uh, uh, two um, sources. Freedom Angels is a very grassroots organization that I follow and I love and I support. Um, there's two ladies who've been super active um, against SB 866, which was the law or which was the bill that would lower age of consent for vaccination to 12. So I love Freedom Angels um, and they're going to still be active and you can get involved with them and do grassroots campaigning at the Capitol if you wanted to. Um, and they're just awesome ladies. Um, and then they can people can follow me. I'll be giving updates on AB 2098 on my Twitter account. And that's at Azadeh Khatibi, A-Z-A. D-E-H-K-H-A-T-I-B-I. -I. And then I'm on Instagram um, at Dr. Azadeh Khatibi. D-R-A-Z-A-D-E-H-K-H-A-T-I-B-I. -I. And we're also going to be making uh, a film. Uh, our production company is making a film about the, doc uh, about the journey of this lawsuit and the people involved. And then against the larger backdrop of the increasing... Um, biomedical security surveillance state um, and increasing authoritarianism. So uh, we'll please follow along and we'll tell you all about that. Again, A-Z-A-D-E-H-K-H-A-T-I-B-I. Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me this morning about this. Um, you know, it certainly helps having these conversations. I think you touched on something that's really essential there. When, when getting information, so much information, especially online, it is slanted a little bit one way or the other. You do have to be, um, you know, uh, inject some sort of uh, rational uh, thought behind the, as you're processing that information. You know, if it's right leaning, acknowledge it's right leaning. If it's left leaning, acknowledge it's left leaning. Um, I, I'm a big believer in talk to a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives, take in news and information from a lot of different perspectives boil it all down, filter through it and, and see what is left. And that's consistent through all those stories. That's it's a lot of work, but that's, you know, how you'll find out where the bits of truth really, really are and separate out all the noise. Yeah. And I think as you get to know yourself and have a deeper connection to yourself as well, um, you just start feeling on an intuitive basis. This doesn't sound right. This does sound right. Right. But I think, yeah, you need to be learn how to be savvy before you start doing that, too. It's kind of hard, I think, for most people because they're so busy working. Yes. Uh, it's hard to, I know when I was like constantly working, I didn't even have time to like think about what was going on in my own life, let alone what was going on in the world. I was just reacting to like the news as I was driving home, right? Um, so to create, consciously create space and time for yourself and connection to yourself, and then also have some time to kind of 
get to know different perspectives and different people just in your own social circle. And um, that I think has a lot of long-term positive health impact by spending time with yourself, spending time with others. And then that also bleeds into you becoming more aware of what's going on and having different perspectives just because you're interacting with other people. And then you're also having time cultivated to just be as opposed to working or reacting all the time for what it's worth. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful message to, to leave on a uh, beautiful way to, to end the, this episode. So again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, appreciate everything that you're out there doing and uh, having this conversation and making it, uh, you know, more public. Uh, it'll certainly at least, if nothing else, make people more aware and more educated on, on these topics. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really appreciate it. And many blessings to you and your audience. Thank you for your time. I hope to keep you updated as this progresses. Likewise, I'll definitely be following.